0: There's a legend here about a short little man who moved over from France. And his name was Jacques Saint-Germain. This is the Saint-Germain house. Notice anything strange about the second floor? Yeah.
1: One of the windows is uh, completely bricked up.
0: Jacques was notoriously famous around here he paid for everything in rubies and diamonds never used coin or paper money through lavish parties but never at his home it was always somewhere else in the quarter or throughout new orleans Well, one day he invites a prostitute back to his house everything's all dark so they go up to the second floor where he says his bedroom is and they can do their do there the lady reported a funny smell and a sticky feel when she started to back out of the arrangement Jacques got angry and ended up literally crossing the room in the blink of an eye and had her off the ground one handed understand this was a short little five foot three four guy Tion small man okay lifted this woman off the ground easily threw her against the wall she managed to scramble away and literally dove out the window and off breaking her leg she crawled a few houses down and people started screaming for the police when the police entered the building And brought with them all of their lights. There was blood everywhere. Literally. Jacques had been killing people in the house. And draining them of their blood. Some say Jacques Saint-Germain was actually the Count Saint-Germain from Europe. but one night was walking around after getting done with a reading session in Jackson Square and this short little man in a leather coat who was there one moment literally gone the next asked me for a lighter for a cigarette tended to ask me for a match but all I had was a lighter lit the cigarette And he says, it's a nice night for Jacques. And I turned around to look at him. Wasn't there no more.
1: (laughs) What do you, uh, what do you think about that?
0: My honest opinion, so many people have put stock in legends that it brings it to reality here in New Orleans. Like I said, New Orleans is a juxtaposition. It is the point where fantasy and reality collide. And across the street from Jacques' place is the Notorious... Lorry Mansion.
1: I'm Jim Perry, and you are listening to Euphemet, a show about the unknown and our relationship to it. On this edition, the draining of blood, the feeding on others, and the quest to keep others fed, vampires and voodoo in New Orleans with Balthazar Ashanti-san, next on Euphemet. Balthazar is a voodoo priest an ordained minister elder of the mystic house of echoes and a vampire
0: first of all I'm not like some of the other sanguine vampires out there I don't use phlebotomy skills in order to draw the blood from someone I take directly from the source but I use extreme oral care then i clean the area that i'm going to cut and i use a new scalpel blade then i make the incision then i You, you suck it out literally yeah um unless it's free flowing if they've drunk a lot of water at any given time it can be anywhere between an ounce to six ounces i feed two to three times a week depending on how physically and spiritually active i am I have four different donors. We're all tested regularly, more to make them feel better than anything else, to let them know that I'm out here doing this with you. My original house instilled a, a thing in me. There's a set of guidelines. Like when I transfer eldership over to somebody else, when somebody else finally steps up and, and they're going to be the next generation and, and lead the house into the next Um, there will be a ritual where I will transfer blood to them. It's not just a symbolic gesture, but blood carries with it memory. So they will have access to things I know that the rest of the house doesn't really know.
1: New Orleans is haunted. Its history and politics, the people, the weather, the deep muddy Mississippi, all seemingly hold stories of something else, of something that can't quite be seen, until the gas lamp flicker outside your door reveals secrets once kept in the shadows, now told, with great hyperbole, to gaggles of damp tourists around every corner of Cobblestone Street in the French Quarter. This is, at face value, an ornately creepy environment. One in which has inspired and fostered most of our popular preconceptions of vampirism. In a city encircled by water and swamp, it's so muggy here. You taste New Orleans with every breath. That almost metallic tinge.
0: It tastes like blood. It was a really stormy day. And I was coming literally just past the Presbyter walking towards the church on some shop errands. And I'm outside Pere Antoine Alley. Nobody down the alleyway. And I heard low voices singing. Now there's a story here in New Orleans that when we changed hands to the Spanish, that the Spanish had sent this commander who decided that since the people didn't want to be under Spanish rule, he would show them what it was like to not be under Spanish rule. So he took the leaders of the community and he killed them, public display, and forced everybody to leave the bodies. Now, the priest at the time lived up here in the Presbyter and he kept watching and watching and watching and one day a really horrendous storm came through so he sent some of his little workers to go talk to the families of the dead and they all met in secret and they grabbed the bodies and they went down this alley what I heard was a dirge and other people hear it we are in one of the most haunted cities in the world I think this is why vampires thrive here but at any given time you can walk through the city streets and see someone dressed as a pirate someone dressed as a clown a living statue full of life full of death this is a city where the dead always influence. It's a place where people can come and literally disappear. They can reinvent themselves, they can become who they truly wish to be. No fear, no prejudice, no judgment. What this city offers. So people come here to disappear. I did, I came here to put to rest my birth name. And instead, because of the reinvention I just incorporated it in because no matter what it's still a part and parcel of who I am I didn't disown my family they disowned me Let me start off by saying, um, I love my family very much. I am very much, um, the kind of person who, who will always love them. But I'm also the kind of person who's very glad they are 750 miles away. Um, growing up as a kid, I was never called Ralph's son, I was always called Diana's boy, my parents. So from the early age, you know, right when identity started setting in and and you're starting to figure out who you are from that age of five to like nine years old, right then I knew I was different than everybody else. My family, on my dad's side, took this position that because I was Diana's boy, I was not really a part of the family. I was just an honored guest. My grandmother, oh my god, she made me feel like I was the world. My grandfather, a little bit of a strange man. Hard grew up in difficult circumstances so he had a very distinct opinion about how life should be I was there living with them for a good portion of my life but the rest of the family the rest of my dad's kith and kin I don't think back then it would have mattered if I had lived or died no skin off their noses Since then, a lot has changed, but early on, I was always sickly. Nobody could really understand what was going on with me. Doctors couldn't really find anything that was going on. To the doctors, I was healthy, but I was always sick. Um, I could devour anything. Literally, and not feel like it was doing anything. I'd be hungry 10 minutes later. But at 11, on a church bus, one of my uncles decided to get really nasty and was picking on my sister. And I had finally blew up. I literally just exploded with rage. And I went and I attacked. Being bigger and stronger than me pinned me easy, had my hands down by my side and I couldn't do anything. And he's laughing. Just absolute guffawing. Doing this bear hug of a squeeze that's Literally threatening to put my lights out And I remember Thinking I gotta get out of this And I reared My head back and I Bit I bit through his winter coat His sweater His shirt His t-shirt and into his Flush enough That he ended up with 36 stitches And I Ended up with blood hitting my tongue For the first time
1: When young, while figuring ourselves out, some of us are lucky enough to be found by a guiding force, a mentor, who like an ascended master, emerges from the shadow of the unknown self to help us define, encourage, create our self-image. For Balthazar, after his first taste of blood, he needed that guidance more than ever, when Ashanti, a vampire herself, entered his life.
0: the rest of the day, I'm sitting there playing with my friends. I'm running with them. I'm hiding with them. I'm doing all the things a normal 11-year-old would do. And then I look up and I notice that Ashanti is talking to my mom. Ashanti then walks up to me and says, I've asked your mom and she's given me permission to work with you she says you're like me you're a vampire and it's like fuck another thing to set me apart because my family was taking this extremely religious bend I mean you want to talk right wing Christian Meet my family. It really began to mess with my head. Because I was already seeing the dead. I'd been seeing them by the age of seven. I was already aware that there was magic in the world, despite Christian saying. It's witchcraft and it's Satan. But Ashanti took great pains in letting me know that this didn't change who I was inside. It just added another layer of what I was. Took her about a year of solid working with me to get me to grasp that I wasn't any worse off than I was before. And there were ways I could go about things and, and make it survivable. At 13, I was inducted into the, the first family of vampires that I was going to ever be a part of. They called themselves a council. They had dedicated themselves to continually being on the fringe of humanity instead of being part of humanity. And I just, for the life of me, couldn't grasp that. So I ended up leaving that group. And traveling different places went into the military got out of the military went to seminary because I figured why not everybody else in my family was becoming ministers may as well join the family business but couldn't reconcile <laughs> what I was being taught with what I was supposed to teach so that was short lived found voodoo and have been here ever since. Some of the lessons were just how to present yourself. It was all about being real and still being true to myself. There was no, well, you can't be this or you can't be that or you can't be the other. It was all If you learn to control this one aspect of you, you can open these doors for you and it can propel you to this level, which will open doors to this level. And so it was all, all how to better my world by bettering the world around me. And I never really understood where that could fit in until after Hurricane Katrina. Hurricane Katrina, where I was living, I was living in in this area notoriously known as Fat City in Metairie. Um, So after I lost everything, and I did, I lost everything. All the music, all the movies, even the pictures of my life. My apartment was filled chest high with water I lost everything and my job I was literally working at Target and when they came back they came back with a vengeance as soon as I could I called them and let them know I was still in the area and the first words out of my boss's mouth were are you all right? Is there anything you need? I was like, I got no clean clothes. I got nothing to eat. By the end of that day, they delivered me two 50 gallon garbage cans full. One was filled with food. The other was filled with clothes. I cried for hours, but it was close to Thanksgiving. And I was like, what the hell am I going to do with all this food? And then Ashanti's words rang back. Make your world better by making the world around you better. So I cooked up all the food and I brought it from Metairie to Jackson Square. And just started feeding anybody that was there. People who had lost everything. Jackson Square this is where NOVA the New Orleans Vampire Association actually comes out and brings food to the homeless or hungry Um, it started off as just a homeless thing and it grew because the artists that are out here sometimes just don't make enough to get groceries Uh, the tarot readers and performers out here sometimes they'll play all day or they'll read all day and not really make enough money so when we're out here we feed anybody who's homeless or hungry we got we got people that come in from the Thibodeau region and they literally will set up right next to us and offer like he raises he raises animals on his farm and fresh-cooked pork, fresh-cooked chicken, fresh-cooked, you know, and we have a good time. We talk, we have fun, we share space. People get fed. Yeah? Are you telling me that vampires are just people? I'm telling you that vampires can be in larger sectioned-off groups what we call a bicker of vampires (laughs) in other words yeah we're just people you're uh you're known in this community huh I think I'm known throughout the world um for various things everything from vampirism to voodoo I'm not seeking fame I don't give a shit about fame to be honest And the reason I keep doing these things is not for fame or glory. I'm not worried about convincing other people or people outside the community this is what I am. I'm doing these things because I want people that are like me out there sitting in the dark going, oh shit, I'm all alone, to know that they're not all alone. There is a broader community out there. There's a community in Portland. There's a community in Seattle. There's a community in Las Vegas. There's a community in LA. There's a community in San Francisco, New York, Florida. (laughs) Name a major metropolitan area. There's a community there. You just have to find it. understand I've been a part of the vampire community for a long time 13 years old, I'm 53 40 years a part of this community I think the biggest and best thing about this vampire community about this community as a whole the very fact that in our darkest times we come together And we support each other. At any given time, I could have crawled my ass back into the shadows and just... I live out loud because, honestly speaking, when I was hiding bits and pieces of me, I was always sick. I was always depressed. I was always... There was always something. And now that I live out loud, and I've been living out loud since I was 25 years old, my health is better, my attitude is better, my, my emotional stability is better, my spiritual stability is off the hook. So, no, I could have crawled back into the shadows at any given time. I don't have to live out loud just because there's detractors. We've had good groups of people, we've had bad groups of people. We've had people that no matter what they do, how good they are, how stellar their reputation there's always those people that will try to tarnish it I'm not the best person in the world i never pretended to be the best person in the world but I have a code of honor I live by and I've been living by it for a long time and I don't give do a damn what anybody says I'm not going to change that code of honor
1: Thank you for listening to this edition of Euphemet. I'd like to thank Empty Faces for their support. Please check out their offers in our show notes and take advantage of these really great partners to the show. And make sure to join us on Facebook. Our group, The Society of Euphemet, is where myself and listeners go to share their own experiences and talk about the show. Please join us in there. It's a lot of fun. You can also follow us at Euphemet on social media and me at It's Jim Perry on Twitter and Instagram. Also, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. And also, please tell your friends. That would be an incredible help. This has been Euphemet. I'm Jim Perry. And until next time, keep looking up.